This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. So, uh, our guest today is Vladislav Solodki, uh, author of the first fintech bank's arrival from uh, book to bank in 12 months. Uh, so Slava, thank you so much for joining us today on Knowledge at Wharton. Hi, hi. Thank you so much for invitation. It's, it's a great honor for me. <laughs> so uh, my first question for you is, how did you come to write this book and how did that lead to building a bank? So summarizing my five, five years experience in fintech industry at that moment, I mean, one year ago, uh, it was the first edition of this book, and right now uh, I updated information in the book, and also I, I have received many comments uh, from different readers, experts from the industry, and uh, right now it, it is the day where we were presented the second edition of the book. So uh, one year ago, summarizing my five years experience in the tech industry, Everything that, that we found when we invested into 25 companies, exited from nine. Uh, also, we are quite famous in fintech industry because we publish our Money of the Future report. It's a very famous uh, fintech and blockchain report. Uh, more than 50,000 downloads of the chapter from different countries. Uh, and... Uh, after that, after all these issues of Money of the Future report, after all of these deals, uh, many people started to ask me, what is the next big thing in fintech industry? Because fintech at that moment became so uh, so big, so huge, uh, about 24 verticals in fintech, more than 5,000 fintech startups across the world, more than 50 unicorn and uh, uh, I spent a lot of time almost a year to summarize my understanding of the industry and to to try to predict uh, the next step the next big thing in fintech so this is how I came to this idea of uh, the book which I named the first fintech bank's arrival, uh, where I try to uh, predict, to to imagine uh, what could happen in fintech uh, during the next two, three, five years. So, so what does the uh, fintech bank of the future look like, and how is it different from a traditional bank in terms of its opportunities and its risks? When first uh, neo banks or challenger banks like Simple Bank, Moving Bank, Tandem, uh, Atom, Monster, all these guys guys came to the market, they are different uh, in comparison with traditional banks uh, related uh, to online channel of distribution. So at that moment, it, it wasn't possible. Even if your traditional bank, they have some uh, some kind of good mobile application or desktop version of their as, as an access 
my access for their bank. Uh, but still, their approach mostly belongs to offline world named branch-oriented approach. Uh, so first, you have to go to to the physical branch to sign a few papers, to start your relationship with the bank, and after that, you could use uh, other products and services, in, including online access. So when the first wave of digital banks, neo banks and challenger banks came to the market, uh, they started to provide uh, mobile-first approach. It means that you could download your bank from Apple Store or Google Play directly and to start your relationships without any obligation to visit physical branch or to sign any documents uh, in physical, in offline world, uh, to start your relationships immediately and to start to use their services. But what is the difference between current stage of fintech industry and uh, this first wave of digital banks? Uh, this difference belongs to uh, all of these guys. Uh, they're doing great stuff, but in reality, when you will try to uh, compare, to analyze what kind of services they are trying to provide for their customers, uh, it is just how to replace bank account itself and some basic products and services like, for example, money transfers or uh, online deposits. But uh, at the end, this approach is not able to provide you as the customer uh, an ability to replace your traditional bank because your traditional bank could deliver 12, 14, 18, 20 uh, product verticals for you as a customer and uh, to cover all your possible needs uh, in each moment during your life. Uh, and this new generation of banks, first wave of digital banks, uh, they started to do a great job, but uh, they are not able to replace uh, the role of traditional banks or their customers. So the second wave, which I described in my book, is related to how new wave of digital banks could replace finally uh, the role of traditional banks for you as a customer. In, in other words, it means how they could deliver all possible products and services uh, which you need as a customer today or in the future. And uh, after that, I started to describe chapter by chapter uh, different angles, different uh, ways how to deliver, how it could be done by these new possible players uh, and try to uh, describe different scenarios for, for the market itself, how to build or to, or even to imagine this bank uh, when, when you are reading this book. Now, what was the significance of the name uh, of, of the bank? What is the significance of what, sorry? The name, the name. 
arrival? Uh, <laughs> so, uh, this is a other story. Uh, so, when I published this book, uh, I I received a lot of attention from different uh, readers, experts. I was invited to present this book across uh, 12 countries. Uh, I, I presented also this book in Warsaw Business School, and uh, it was a great honor for me to to be there and to talk with students, professors, etc. And um, uh, after that, many people started to ask me, uh, because you're a successful investor in fintech industry, you awarded so many times for your achievement, like top 35 uh, best fintech investor in the world by institutional uh, investor magazine or like top 100 uh, influencers in the world by Aston Young, etc., etc. So I, I received many <laughs> different awards in different parts of the world. Uh, and at that moment, many people started to ask me, uh, what if you could create this band which could be built, which could be based on your concept of fintech banking. And uh, after that, uh, we united with Igor Payson and Jeremy Berger. So Jeremy right now also here with me. Uh, he's co-founder and chief operation officer of Arrival Bank. So when we united together and decided to build this bank, uh, we also started to think about how to brand, how to name this bank. And uh, we took uh, this game of words, like arrival of the first fintech bank and arrival for traditional banks who are unwilling to serve new generation of entrepreneurs, especially tech-oriented businesses. So this is the origin of our name, of our brand yeah, that, as a that's, band. But, yeah, but I a, think that yeah. Jeremy could describe uh, more and better from uh, practical, uh, like to provide practical view. Also, I wanna, want to mention that three weeks ago, he presented uh, first time arrival band uh, on public. It, uh, it was in Hong Kong on Finnovate stage. So Finnovate is the biggest and most famous FinTech award awards in the world, uh, and he immediately won. Uh, so two weeks ago, he presented this bank arrival band in Europe on FinTech in competition and also won. Uh, one week ago, he presented this. Uh, he presented the rival bank in London on Driven by Design, uh, London Design Awards, and also won so three awards in three weeks. I think it's good <laughs> wow. sign from the universe, from the face, that uh, uh, we are doing something new and something extremely attractive uh, for the audience. Well, first of all, congratulations on the awards. So thank you so much, and and also I want to mention that uh, everybody, everywhere, 
all journalists, all listeners, all experts, all regulators across the world. They are so surprised and excited that Jeremy, he is only 24 years old, so he is the youngest uh, banker, digital <laughs> banker in the world at that moment. Oh, interesting. Well, so so let me ask Bo, uh, Jeremy and also you, uh, uh, why do you think uh, Arrival Bank won these awards? What, uh, what is it about the bank that appealed to uh, you know, the judges in all, all, all three locations that you mentioned? So that's a great question. I think uh, there's like three key elements of our bank that really attracts businesses, judges, and everywhere we travel. Um, so the first of which is that we put a pretty heavy approach on our compliance and our KYC. Uh, the fact that we're targeting these underbanked businesses, if you will, like SMEs, startups, freelancers, you know, charity organizations, even crypto-related businesses. Uh, we'd certainly need a very sophisticated level of compliance, KYC, AML, so on and so forth. Um, so that's the first kind of um, edge of Arrival Bank. The second of which is actually how we deliver our products and services. The fact that we have this open API banking approach, meaning we can partner with some of the hotter fintechs on the market and deliver their products and services that are obviously de uh, designed for our business customers. Um, I think that's a very unique angle as well. And, and thirdly, the kind of the authentic strategy we have in terms of interacting with our customers. Um, you know, we, we don't really believe in chatbots. We really believe in having this authentic, natural communication that's super transparent. Um, so we don't want to, you know, move backwards in terms of how we approach our customers. We want to make sure that they feel confident with us and comfortable with us being here long term. So we put a big effort in really understanding them, their business needs day to day. And we've made that quite clear in the way we present our bank, you know, all across the world. No, that's really interesting, and I'd like to come back to some of the things you you mentioned, uh, Jeremy. But I I have a question about the uh, initial startup. Uh, what led you to launch it in Puerto Rico, uh, and what were some of the challenges you faced initially in setting up the bank? Are there any special regulatory issues in setting up a fintech bank in the U.S. compared with other countries? Yeah, that's another good question. So maybe just a little bit of context on my background because it more or less relates to Puerto Rico. So I went to university in South Florida, so I was more or less fluent with some of the, you know, opportunities arising in Puerto Rico, and especially after the hurricane about a year or two ago, obviously the economy was looking for some sort of rejuvenation, um, and, and fintech might be a natural remedy for economic boost. So the government has been extremely vocal in terms of, you know, encouraging startups to come set up shop here, looking for fintechs, looking for VCs, so on and so forth. So initially the idea, after, you know, we started getting all this traction and publicity with Fava's book, was, okay, let's, let's buy a bank and kind of, you know, transform the business model, if you will. So we looked at maybe 20, 30 different smaller banks within Europe, within the U.S., um, in terms of buying them or purchasing them. But then we realized, you know, buying a bank doesn't happen overnight. The, the amount of resources, the amount of capital, the time, so on and so forth, it's more or less equal or equivalent to actually building it from scratch and going through the licensing process. So then we started looking at different jurisdictions, right? We understand that, you know, in Asia there's a virtual banking license in Hong Kong. In, in the U.K. there's an e-money license. You know, in different places in Europe there's EMIs, e-money institutions. But the more due diligence we did, 
the more we realize that a lot of the banking systems globally try to emulate the U.S. market um, in terms of its sophistication, in terms of its durability, um, everything was leading back to the U.S. market. And I'm not going to say it's the most innovative, because it's not. Um, and it's not due to lack of innovative minds. I think it's more because of how competitive the playing field is, right? There's almost 9,000 small or community banks in the U.S., so it's really hard for um, banks to kind of come out on top. Um, whereas in the U.S., you've seen a lot of the banks in you know, more, more developing countries, and I hate to use that word developing, but you know, in countries like Italy, Poland, even in places in Africa, you see a lot of these digital banks coming about that are getting kind of the, the traction and reception that, that make them innovative. So then we realized Puerto Rico is obviously U.S. territory. It's, territory, it's under the U.S. federal banking system, so there's a lot of advantages and benefits of being um, in the Puerto Rican banking system and then allowing more or less a gateway to the U.S. market. Um, so we thought, you know, certainly U.S. is the hardest market to kind of get into, but if we're gonna, going to do it right, and we certainly want the integrity and, the, you know, the credibility going forward, we thought, why not start with the hardest market? in the U.S. And then obviously Puerto Rico came out as an option, and that's kind of how we landed um, as identifying Puerto Rico as the initial entry point. At the same time, we're currently already expanding into different markets. So I mentioned the EMI license in the EU. That's certainly on our agenda. We're actually applying there as we speak. We hope to apply there at the end, at the end of this year in the next week or two. Um, submit the application there. And then at the same time, we're all also looking at the e-money license in the U.K. So Puerto Rico is just the beginning. We want to move as global as fast as possible. And all outside uh, U.S. presence and European presence through Puerto Rican Gateway and Spanian Gateway and uh, through the U.K. Uh, jurisdiction, uh, we also... Uh, on the way to apply for licenses across such jurisdictions that we already started this uh, process and these negotiations with regulators and major players there in Japan, in Hong Kong, in Singapore, and in Dubai. So we want to cover as fast as we can by our licenses as many countries uh, as our uh, bank account will provide opportunity for us to, to apply, to receive. And regarding U.S. market, so it is the major, uh, it, it, it's main, it, it's like mother market for us. Uh, it's some kind of historical moment for this market without application. Why? Two reasons. So digital banking as phenomenon started from the U.S., but still all digital banks, which already exist in the U.S., all of them are not licensed. So it will be the first ever license, which will be, I hope, <laughs> will be provided for any digital bank in the U.S. ever uh, for any player. So second reason to estimate this moment as uh, a historical moment is about that uh, none of U.S. banks, traditional or new new players, none of other banks across uh, United Kingdom, across Singapore, across Japan, uh, across Germany, none of those banks are not granted, are not welcomed by their regulators 
to accept crypto-related business systems, crypto-related clients. And uh, we are the first team, especially it's very hard here in the U.S. because Federal Reserve and Security uh, Commission, so uh, they're very... Conservatives, they're very careful with this uh, new type of currencies, new type of tokens, new type of businesses which were built on uh, this technology and this approach. So we are the first team which came to Federal Reserve and to Commissioner in Puerto Rico and his team and told honestly and 100% transparency that first. First of all, yes, we want to attract this kind of clients. Second one, we are able in terms of compliance, in terms of KYC and IML to to track them. Uh, and uh, so it's uh, two reasons to uh, to attract attention, to pay more attention to this moment because uh, it, it will be really the first moment in in the U.S. where digital bank are granted by by bank license from regulator side. And third, third reason to uh, to to spend more time. Uh, to, to discover the case of Arrival Bank is about that only two of all digital banks which exist in the U.S., uh, they are focused on businesses. So uh, only 12 uh, digital banks in the world, they're trying to innovate, they're trying to disrupt, they're trying to create something new to provide uh, new technologies and new approaches to serve business clients, and only two of them they are exist they exist in in the United States. So we are the third one. We are the first one in terms of bank license, and we are the first one in the world who uh, want to be granted by license to work with crypto-related businesses. Sorry for such many words, but it's, I think it's important. Yeah, no, that that's that's re- really f- fascinating to hear. Uh, I, I wonder, how, how do you think about who your customers are and how do you use data and analytics to gain a competitive advantage over traditional banks? Sure, so I think, you know, the story of Arrival really started about a year and a half ago when our VC fund, Life Streeta, uh, was approached by hundreds of different businesses really coming to us with the same problem. Um, so banks were closing and freezing their accounts and simply put businesses, like I mentioned before, you know, crypto-related businesses, freelancers, startups, independent contractors, and even charity organizations are really facing this, this challenge of being disconnected from the banking system. And the more research we did and due diligence, we spent about two or three months of hardcore research. We really understood that the problem was universal. So you could read stories, you know, any day of the week that banks in Australia, Thailand, Israel, 
and certainly in the U.S., are, are closing or freezing accounts for these kinds of businesses. But then we realized, you know, what does this mean? Not only are they not getting, you know, the accounts or the current accounts, but they're not getting the banking products or financial tools they need to really operate on a day-to-day level. So that's really how we identified these businesses or target customers that we're going after with a rival bank. In terms of data and analytics, it's really um, fluent and, I guess, relevant in, in the KYC and AML piece, right? Because we don't, yes, there's, you know, hundreds and thousands, if not millions of underserved businesses, but we're not saying that we want to onboard all of them. Uh, we know there's a huge, huge demand and opportunity, but at the same time, we want to make sure that we're targeting an exclusive class of them, the ones that are have the data obtainable where we can evaluate the risk ratings, right, to, to evaluate whether or not um, it makes sense in terms of customer retention or longevity. So I think that's a big, big way we, you know, use analytics and data from the beginning. At the same time, we believe, you know, data is kind of a driving force of the future of banking, right? So I think we can all agree that, you know, one day we all want to wake up and uh, our Siri or Alexis says, you know, good morning, Jeremy, here are your financial holdings and portfolio changes for the day. You know, you have a meeting at 2, shall I order you the Uber? And by the way, you know, your wife wants lasagna for dinner, um, shall I order you the ingredients? And this is really driven by not only data, but it's also driven by voice and analytics. So we want to make sure that, you know, we know there's a lot of innovative players out there, that that's for sure, but at the same time, we want to, you know, in the next few years, if not sooner, be able to offer these kinds of, of features and services for our businesses as customers. And I think that's a very unique angle to kind of consider as well. Um, so, you know, we're, we're definitely staying on top of our game, and uh, we're excited, you know, for the coming months, and I hope that kind of answers your question. Yeah. So uh, what do you have to understand when you decide to build a bank, I mean, real bank, uh, licensed bank, uh, when you will visit office of regulator, Federal Reserve, and to talk with them regarding your new approach, your new startup, your new idea, for sure they will listen uh, all your innovative ideas, all your predictions, what could happen uh, with the industry, fintech industry itself. But 99% of their questions will belong to compliance, compliance, compliance. They also care about innovation, all these disruptors. For sure it's something interesting for them to, to know about it, to upgrade their knowledge base, to, to dream about our common future, but regulators have to hedge the risk. Regulators have to take care about citizens of the country, and the, uh, all of their questions, most of their questions, will go to compliance. And when we came first time to regulator and be told that uh, we want to serve such kind of customers, so they immediately answered for us that, Mm, it's an interesting idea. For sure, it's not forbidden, but you have to understand that it's high-risky clients, not only crypto-related customers, but also, as Jeremy just mentioned, charity funds, uh, experts, uh, even modern industry, even uh, residents of e-residency program in Estonia, or 
legal sellers of weed <laughs> across different states in the US. So, so many companies, so many businesses, so many target audiences excluded from banking system. And when you will decide to work with such high-risk clients, you have to show for us that you are able to provide compliance uh, on six points out of five. So you have to show for us that you are able to implement all cutting-edge technologies in KYC, IML industry, not only in fintech industry, but also in reg tech industry to, to track origination of their money, their social connections. So, so um, it's everything about big data analysis, not only transactional data, financial data, but also about social data even. Uh, what kind of devices where uh, you you want to use to to bank? Uh, how many friends, colleagues, family members do you have? How they connect with others? Who are your senders? What about their friends? Uh, who are your receivers of your money? Uh, what about their colleagues and other social connections? So uh, it's everything. So when you will ask us for what kind of questions, what kind of uh, directions we have spent most of our uh, time, attention, and money, and even uh, my own hair, <laughs> uh, so uh, you will understand that uh, it's uh, related for compliance and uh, uh, the the sign. Uh, reaction from the industry that we are doing something extremely new, extremely interesting for other players is that supporting other bands came to us when they found how we want to do our compliance for ourselves and asked us, could we use your compliance as a service instead of our own compliance department? Oh, and one one of top ten biggest companies in the world. I cannot uh, name this company, but everybody knows this company. Everybody uses their products and services. So one of those these top ten companies they came to us and also asked us, we want to use it for uh, know your employees, know your partners, know your uh, businesses or your customers for all these purposes uh, and uh, one of the biggest messengers in the universe I also cannot count the name of this company but they have several hundreds of millions of users and they also came to us with this uh, question could we use your compliance which you created for yourself, for a rival bank, but what's about um, to provide us the ability to use this solution for ourselves to verify our users across the world. So that, that actually begs the question, how do you ensure compliance 
with uh, banking regulations, especially the know your customer and anti-money laundering rules. As you pursue uh, new opportunities with these very high risky clients like uh, you know crypto businesses and so on. Yeah, so as Slava mentioned from the get-go, we have to be very transparent and open with the regulators. So from day one, we made it clear that these are the kinds of businesses we want to go after. Um, at the same time, we're not a crypto bank, right? So we share a lot of similarities with traditional banks in terms of fiat transactions and, and such. But um, going back to your question regarding compliance, you know, obviously we had to engage some of the top names in compliance consulting world. Um, but in addition to that, it's very... It's very important to understand the most three important things in compliance, right? So customer product geography, basically who they are, what they want from you, and where they're located. And once you kind of obtain this information during the KYC process, then you kind of put them into your risk matrix, which obviously shoots out the risk rating. Um, and then based on this risk rating, then you proceed internally with the due diligence, with the different research and kind of the KYC verifications that you need to validate them as a customer that you either want on board or not. So I think, you know, going back to this old-school compliance is important to understand, but at the same time, it's really crucial to, to understand where compliance is heading. So right now, traditional banks, um, you know, I think most of us can agree it's very time-consuming, it's costly, it's done manually most of the time. It's not really designed for higher-risk businesses. So what if we said, you know, from day one, we made it our goal and priority to develop compliance that is design for these kinds of businesses, where we show them that we understand the businesses, what they're doing day to day, what kind of investors have they interacted with, you know, what kind of auditing should we expect from them, what kind of business plans that we evaluate as feasible business plans. You know, so I think there's a lot of different triggers and flags that we've implemented and developed it in-house that really shows that we understand compliance and we've made it tailored for these kinds of businesses. At the same time, as I mentioned, we're looking ahead, right? So where do we see compliance three, five, maybe eight years down the road? So we certainly see, you know, a very big level of, of deep tech, machine learning, you know, data analytics, as you mentioned before, because we want to kind of remedy, uh, remedy kind of the faults that you see, you know, now day-to-day with traditional banks. And that goes back to mitigating, you know, false positives, increasing, you know, adverse media search engines, a lot of different things that are that are challenging right now with banks that are done manually. Um, so I think if we can automate a lot of these processes, it'll, it'll make compliance a lot easier and, and increase the chances of us effectively onboarding these kinds of higher-risk businesses that, that we mentioned before. So what you have to understand that before to create this cutting-edge solution for ourselves, which we internally named AAD, uh, before that, we tried to hire or to become a customer for other um, compliance firms, startups, even giants. But after that, we found that, uh, yes, many companies trying to provide great uh, solutions, great technologies for KYC Know Your Customer. But only few of them are able to provide solutions for know your business for KYB. Second one uh, is related to uh, all of them are focused on onboarding process. But onboarding risk it's only I don't know 10, 15 percent of your risk to onboard wrong 
quiet, don't worry about guys, because 80-90% of these bad guys could be verified as bad guys only when they will uh, proceed with their transaction. And uh, uh, you could read uh, different materials related to uh, recent investigations from uh, U.S. government related uh, recent money laundering cases, uh, all of real uh, bad guys, I mean, big money laundering specialists, most of them, they will be able for sure to successfully proceed with your onboarding process. But where you could find them, where you could track them, where you could catch them, it's only during ongoing compliance. So. Only a few companies in the world are able to provide not only uh, onboarding verification, but also successful approach, successful solutions for ongoing compliance. Uh, third point, what's about reporting? Fourth point, what's about uh, architecture of your compliance, how to build the solution as open API-based uh, Technology which could be used not not only by yourself but also for others, by other companies, by other startups. And since the beginning, we uh, created our architecture as open architecture uh, based on open APIs, and each element of our bank, including our compliance solution, could be used by any third-party player. And uh, the most interesting uh, feature for all banks across the world, not most of them, but all banks, for all banks across the world. Compliance, it's expenses and headache. For our bank, it's a passion, real life, love, and real, uh, one of the biggest income sources, income for the bank. So it is the first example in the world when the bank decided to earn money on that, not to lose money on that, and to, to, to be inspired, to be uh, satisfied, <laughs> uh, to be in love with such kind of uh, obligations from the government rather than to be stressed, depressed, <laughs> and well-dressed uh, by compliance uh, obligations from Federal Reserve. Interesting. Uh, just last couple of questions. One is, how do you work with other institutions as part of the financial services ecosystem? Uh, do you see other banks as competitors or as partners or as both? And how do you manage your relationships with them? You know, so we've been approached by many, many different banks, and we don't see them as competitors. If anything, we, we want to create this kind of learning platform to educate each other, because certainly they know some things we don't, and, and we know some things they don't. So, you know, Slava's the book, and, you know, some premise you can find within it is really how fintechs and banks need to collaborate and cooperate. 
So, of course, there's a lot of benefits and advantages of doing that, um, whether, you know, it's influx and in, in monetization strategies or, or market share or, you know, sharing customers, um, you know, referral agreements, so on and so forth. So I think in terms of how we want to work with banks, I think sub-licensing is something we're currently passively looking into in terms of expansion into different markets that are a little bit more conservative or, you know, especially in places in Asia, in, in Japan or in Singapore, we're talking to some banks passively in terms of partnerships there. Um, so, you know, it's not like we have this anti-mentality against traditional banks. Of course, you know, we want to do something a little bit different, and we think, you know, this, this fintech banking um, strategy is real, and the time for it is now. So, you know, with that being said, you know, we don't have this, you know, active approach day-to-day in terms of partnering with banks yet, but we certainly see some potential down the road. Great. Uh, one last question. What uh, are the biggest risks you foresee for uh, your own bank in the future, and how will you mitigate those risks? So, uh, most of our, the biggest risk we could receive, it is to onboard wrong clients, uh, with wrong money and some. Uh, hidden source of funds, source of wealth. But uh, you have to understand how regulator will estimate your behavior and your reaction uh, for this case. And it's influenced a lot for our own behavior because we really want to be uh, responsible for our clients. We want to be uh, super transparent for regulator and other counterparts uh, across financial markets uh, to proceed with such kind of clients. So uh, everything what regulator want to know when you will onboard, when you will uh, interact with wrong customers. So first of all, uh, who will find this mistake. If it will be you, your bank, it's, it's like a plus for your karma. If it will be regulator, it's a minus. Second one is about uh, how fast you will, you could tell about this mistake, about this case, for regulator, if you will do this immediately and very transparent, it's a plus for your karma. If you will wait for a few months or even years, like like it happened recently with several banks, uh, and they already received claims from regulator for a few hundreds of millions, that's uh, it's fine. So. Uh, you have to understand that you 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 have to uh, talk about your mistakes as fast as you can with regulator. So third point, which is uh, really very important for regulator, what you have done before to predict and to hedge this risk. So if you had different suggestions, different ideas different risk metrics 
and technologies to to track this risk. It's not so bad that finally you you had re- received some uh, you onboarded some wrong coins because you tried you tried to hedge. And the fourth one is about what you will do after that. So how you could be able to upgrade your internal processes, your compliance requirements, your compliance uh, technologies to uh, avoid this risk uh, later with other clients. So if you will be answered for all these four simple questions, uh, nobody will punish you because regulator in the U.S. and regulators across other jurisdictions, they understand that you could not be able to protect 100% your business from some possible enemies uh, from outside, some wrong guys, which we, which will try to use your bank for the dirty plan, but uh, the what's more important for them is uh, to receive right answers for this simple four question. Great. Well, uh, Slava, Jeremy, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. I really appreciate your taking the time. Thank you so much. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 